Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
101.5 UMFM. This is Thank God. It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Alzin kicking things off for us tonight from her new album, Lotus Glow. That's French Caribbean artist Adi Oasis with Serena. Great track, great record. Uh, if you're in the vein of Lady Ray or Nikki Egan or other stuff like that that I've played on the show, you will definitely dig Lotus Glow. Uh, i got a busy show for you tonight. Uh, earlier this week, I spoke to Ali Hassan, the comedian. Uh, he's in town on the 15th. Uh, playing the West End Cultural Center, and we will get into that in uh, just a couple minutes after our next musical selection. And then coming up around 7 o'clock, I spoke to Norwegian violinist Eldbjörg Hemsing uh, about her wonderful new album on Sony Classical. It's called Arctic. Uh, as I said, we'll get into that around 7 o'clock. But first, uh, Nashville soul singer. This is in the vein of Curtis Harding, who I've also played here on the show. Uh, got a new single called All I Really Want to Do from the forthcoming record Love You Anyway, which is out in April. Uh, keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.
Well, comedian Ali Hassan coming to Winnipeg, and he joins us on the phone. Welcome to the show, Ali. Thanks, Michael. Uh, I, I, in part, kind of got you on here because you've done Canada Reads hosting in, in the past, and I'm a big book lover. And, and mm. I'm curious, I mean, are you, are you a book guy? Like, is that how you ended up doing this? Because I know sometimes, you know, comedians end up hosting like, like you know, cooking shows or things like that, where because it's like the personality-driven thing. It's not necessarily a connection to the the subject matter per se, but like, are you a big book guy? You know, it's a little bit embarrassing to admit this, uh, but I am uh, I'm not trained in the world of uh, you know journalism or uh, radio or even like you know. My father was an English teacher, and he would regularly uh, berate me for not reading enough. I'm not even a voracious reader. Mm. I love reading, love it, but I don't even read that much. Canada Reads is personally so great. It gives me, it forces me to read five books before the month of March every, uh, every single day, every single year. Right. So then, you know, do you, do you, do you talk to your dad and say, hey, like, w- have you read these books? What do you think of them? Or are you just kind of like taking your own notes and, and going into that Canada Reads process? With what? He's deep. He's deep in the grave. There's no talking to him anymore. But he, oh, uh, he I think he would be. Uh, you know, he was a notorious heckler as well. He would just be like, "Oh my God, they're hiring anybody for anything these days." You know. But um, no, I, I I read them pretty much. The idea behind Canada Reads was there, there was some debate about whether the host should read the books or not. Because some people were like, you know, they'll they'll inevitably like a book. And then uh, all of a sudden be, impar- be be partial to something. And you're supposed to be a moderator and be completely impartial. But I just, I like the idea of, you know, if somebody, some panelist is like, uh, you know, and Lily said this to this person, I can then help the um, the chat along by telling our audiences that Lily, by the way, the protagonist in this novel, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think it would be weird to have not read the book. So... Um, I read them, and I generally, I would say 90% of the time, enjoy them so uh, thoroughly and get introduced uh, a couple of times. I've been introduced to, 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 to my top 10 books of my life uh, through Canada Reads. So you're, you're not necessarily the audience avatar who's, like, hearing all of these arguments fresh and having, like, no kind of foreknowledge of what's coming. It's... That's the other thing, right? I have a, some sort of, like, ah, they'll probably pick up on this, they'll probably pick up on this. And when they do pick up on this... I know that somebody else who has a book that has, you know, a similar argument will want to pounce on that person. So I, I, I can kind of move um, the discussion in certain ways sometimes. I always like that, yeah. Does that uh, experience as a host prep you in terms of thinking about guests as, like, you know, you appear on Q, you appear on As It Happens, you've been a guest on other programs. Like, does it make you think about, like, what the host is going to kind of come at you with? Sometimes, sure, sometimes. I feel like when I do an interview, it's a little bit more like improv. I, a long time ago, I asked uh, Colin Mockery, one of the interviews I've done. Colin Mockery, you may know him. Whose line is it? Anyone? One of the greatest improvisers to ever, for, to ever play the game, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, how do you prepare for, for something? Like, a whose line is it anyway? And he goes, um, eat a ham sandwich. I'm like, no, no, Colin, what I'm saying is you're backstage. The show's about to start in the next half an hour. What do you do? What are your preparation methods? He goes, yeah, that's the question I was answering. I eat a ham sandwich. 
And I was like, how does that help you prepare? He goes, because I just clear my mind inter- you know, completely so that I'm just ready for whatever. It's a really about clearing everything in your mind. And I, I kind of go that direction with interviews when I'm the uh, subject of the interview. Mm-hmm. When I'm the interviewer, it's a completely different ballgame, obviously. Uh, but yeah, generally, I just clear my mind and, and, and let myself have some fun with the interview. Well, speaking of hand sandwiches, the show you're touring is Does This Taste Funny? <laughs> nice one. Uh, thank nice you. one, Michael. Thank you very much. I wasn't going to draw attention to it, but thanks. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, food figures centrally to uh, to this this tour, this this routine. Um, first of all, have you had a, fi- a ham sandwich that tastes funny? Um, I'll tell you what. Of all the pork, as a Muslim, you know, you you don't eat pork growing up, so it's this big, you know, uh, kind of this 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 sin, this. Um, What's that called when something is denied to you? This uh, forbidden fruit. Forbidden fruit is the mm. word I'm looking for. I've had so much of it that I forgot the term forbidden fruit. <laughs> but but you kind of pick and choose. You're like, what, what which pork is worth it? You know, you know, you don't you don't go willy nilly into the water. So, um, of all the porks, I could live the rest of my life in its entirety without ever having ham again. So I've I've had ham sandwiches that are. Uh, not funny at all. They're just bland and kind of completely lacking oomph. That is until you try Serrano ham, right? With, right. Um, there's good hams out there, but oh, the yeah. general sort of maple glazed ham, I'm not really much of a fan. Like, like Andrea Bargnani's ham, that kind. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you know, I would, I would travel for that ham. Um, so in terms of building a, a set around this topic, like, is this something where, like, because it's a, like a journey you've been on personally, like you just are like making notes as you go along this, or is this kind of like, how, how do you build a set around yeah, a topic? I mean, I've been making notes throughout my life in a, in a, in a way, you know, these are stories I've had throughout my life as I, I was a chef and I was a caterer. I was a cooking instructor. My life was definitely very, very rooted in food. And I thought it would be for the, the entirety of my life. So I've had to sort of think about, like, how did I get into this? Why do I do this? And um, you know, these stories kind of stick with you. The challenge is, how do you present it to people? How do you present it in a theater? How do you make it a cohesive thing? And I, um, I actually enlisted the help of some comedy writer friends that I have. Uh, a partic- one particular person is Phil Luzzi, and Phil does a lot of... Um, uh, directing of people's solo shows and comedy specials. And his gift is he takes all the stories that people have and he can be like, yep, this should come before this, this should come this, this is where you should end, this kind of thing. So um, with with some help, I was able to like assemble this uh, quickly, um, especially because you know during the pandemic, there was a lot of time to think about this stuff. And I wrote a book which I'll actually, you know, I'll have with me. I, I sell it and I sign it when I'm on tour. But the book is called Is There Bacon in Heaven? And um, I knew that I was like, I should save some stuff for a second book one day. Mm. And um, so then I had like these two things kind of going concurrently. The, the, the food world, So even though the book has the word bacon right in the title, you think that would be the food book. Um, but there's many more stories to tell, which is why I have this this tour. Is there some linkages or commonalities in terms of editing a book 
and shaping kind of the narrative in a book to a, a live set and like how you kind of create or craft the like point A to point Z? Um, I, I was actually quite surprised about this, that, uh, you, you know, I, I toured a show called Muslim Interrupted. That was my previous comedy special. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, a guy I knew said, I think you might have a book on your hands. He was in the book business. So I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. He sets me up with this editor. I send him the transcript of Muslim Interrupted. And I said, well, what do you think? Do we have a book on our hands? And he goes, yeah, you're about 40,000 words shy, but, uh, but you have a book. I was like, what? So now it's like, okay, so i got to get to work. I start getting to work, and I have all these stories. And I'd send him a story, and I'd be like, what do you think? He's like, great, made me laugh, love it. Why are you telling this story? And I'd be like, what do you, I don't know, man, I'm just telling this, I don't understand the question. You know, I'm just telling, because as a comedian, your training is to literally, it's this easy, you go, so I'm, uh, I'm on the street yesterday, and I see this guy, Bubba, and that's it. You're in. You're in. You don't have to give anybody any more context than that if you don't want to. And his question constantly was like, in the format of this book, uh, along the theme of this book, what is the message you want people to get from this story? Why are you telling it? What is the takeaway? And I, there were a couple of times where it took, without exaggeration, two full weeks of me kind of like just pacing around the house every day. Why am I telling this story? Why am I telling this story? Why? Am I? And I, I could, you know, that was the toughest part of this book, trying to fit everything together. And there are stories that just didn't make the book for that reason. It's, like, it's a great story, but how does it tie in with a book about identity and belonging and culture and, you know, a little bit of parenting, a little bit of... And sometimes it didn't work. So that's, that's the challenge. So it's actually, in my experience... The comedy, particularly like the solo show format, the one-man show that I do, that lends itself to writing, but it's only part of the game. And the real work comes once you start like assembling a book together, unless you're doing like collected essays, then it's a different thing. But when you're doing a book, a thematic book, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot more work after the uh, comedy special is over. And I guess in terms of building a bit within a, a stand-up show, you don't necessarily have to ask yourself, why am I telling this story? This is what I'm saying. Exactly. No, you don't have to at all. Uh, no segues required. They can just come out of the blue, you know. Yeah. Sure. Well, speaking out of the blue, uh, you have four children. And uh, I have to imagine, as someone who's, you know, put, put some of your life into fine dining and food and, and food culture... Do you ever rub up against like kids having like really bland tastes? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a huge challenge in our house. Now, I won't say our kids are picky eaters because I've seen picky eaters. What we do have in our house, we have uh, like my wife. Uh, they are rule followers, so I've been very lucky to say, "Look, kids, you may not like this, but everybody has to try it. You have to try it. You have to have a little bit," and they do it. And some of them are very miserable while they're doing it. And uh, I've learned to put up with their miserable faces while they're eating. In one case, it's avocados. In another case, it's eggplant. Um, But my two daughters are very, like, they're content with not much. Like, my eldest for years would just have a piece of dry toast for breakfast. No butter. No jam. We were like, why? I I can hear the... 
your saliva is working so hard to digest this toast. Can you eat something? Can you put anything? Like begging a child to put jam on their toast. It's a weird situation we found ourselves in. So I wouldn't describe them as picky, but they're content with so little, and they have kind of like bland palates. My youngest, my seven-year-old, he just turned eight, he is, uh, he's got a fantastic palate. And my other son, who's 11 also, when he was young, pretty, pretty impressive. They have like, well, I remember once my son, who's now 11, but he was, he was younger, he was about six, and he tasted a cheese, and he goes, is this the same cheese we had when we went to that place in Montreal where we sampled the cheese? And it was, and I was like, I don't, I don't think I'll ever be prouder than you, of, 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 of you than, than this moment right here. This is incredible. He remembered this raclette cheese we had had like six months prior. He had a memory for taste. So you take the good with the bad when you're when you're a parent, you know. Are you ever ambivalent about including them in your in your routine, like like stories? Like, are there things you just want to withhold or just kind of keep keep to yourself? I think yeah. There's yeah. some things that I don't, out of respect for them. Although if my 17 year old was here, she was like, "You do not have respect for us at all." What are you talking about? Um, she she has told me she's like. You can't you can't tell stories about me. That's like a violation of my privacy. And I'm like, well, it's also like how we pay the mortgage and how I feed you. So you have to give me a little bit, you know. So we, yeah, that's I'm I, this my comedy style is very personal, and I talk about myself. So I will talk about my family. But you know, I do sometimes think about like how will this reflect on them years from now. I mean, will it be something that people will be like? Oh, I saw your father's comedy. So are you the one who this? And like, will it be horrific? You know, are you the one who still wets your bed at eighteen? Uh, not that any of them do, but I could tell that about myself. You know, I was wetting my bed till eighteen. Let's say, again, there was no bed wetting. I'll be clear about that. Uh, but it feels a little bit more like that's deeply personal with the kids, and we'll let, let them have that and go through that journey. So. Yeah, I, I don't think I go full 100% anything they say or do. I'm like, that's on stage. Um, I, I approach it with a little bit of respect, a modicum of decency. Well, folks will get a chance to hear uh, some of those stories and more on March 15th at the West End Cultural Center when Ali Hassan brings Does This Taste Funny to the Stage. Ali, thanks very much for taking some time to talk about the show. It's my pleasure. Yeah, please uh, spread the word. I'm looking forward to it. I did the Muslim Interrupted there in 2017. It's a great room, and it'll be a great time. Thank you, Michael. I hope to see you there. What if, what if some of the students are vegetarian? They can remove the pepperoni. Uh, but, Mr. Eagle, what if some of the students are vegan? They can remove the... What in Christ's name is a vegan, Dolores? It's 1989. What are you on about? Vegan? They can be homeschooled. <laughs> so I go out, I get this organic chicken, I get these like farmhouse carrots, you know, I get the whole thing, make a stock from scratch. And I'm like, here you go. And they're like, what is that? I'm like, no, it's chicken carrot soup. And they're like, ew! I'm like, what are you talking about, ew? I was like, hey, screw both of you. I'm no longer, I'm no longer <laughs> of pleasing the children. I'm just going to make one. You know what? At that moment, I was like, okay, I'm running this like a 1982 kitchen. That's how I'm going to do it. What's for dinner? Dinner's for dinner. Mind your own business. That's how we're doing it here. <laughs> it's an unbelievable spread. And these aunties are always like, diabetes? How? <laughs> if 
fucking mystery, auntie. I don't, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to be a spy. There's no way. Because here's how you torture me. I realize you just, you starve me for three hours. And then you just start baking some sourdough bread in the distance. That's all you got to do. And I just need to, is that sourdough? Listen, I got all the secrets, okay? I got classified documents. Here you go. Whatever you need. Nuclear codes.
Right before the break, Montreal duo Body Wash with a new single called No Repair. That's from a forthcoming record. Uh, also from a forthcoming record, our next musical selection, uh, Montreal pianist Alexandra Strelitsky's album Neo Romance will be out on Secret City. Uh, she released a few singles so far. This one is called Borders. Then we've got a selection from my next guest, Eldbjer Kemsing, uh, from her album Arctic. It's under the Arctic moon. Keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM.
All right. Well, we've played selections from her album, Arctic, which she described as a passion project. Elbjörg Hemsing joins me to talk about it. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So uh, I want to give folks a little bit of background about yourself before we kind of get into the project itself and, and talk deeply about kind of the, the creation of the music. As I understand it, your mom taught you to play violin? That's correct. So was that like an intentional thing on her part? Like, like was she like, okay, these kids are always going to play the violin? Or did you have to show an interest and, and then kind of get into it? Like, how did, how did that come about? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I do come from a super teeny tiny little town of uh, around 600 people. And my mom was, I think, the only violinist there. Mm. So we grew up in a house with just lots of music. And I think it just became very natural to play somehow. And uh, even though it's a little while ago now, I imagine it must have been very quickly such a um, um, joy playing. And, and I think that's why she also really wants us to keep playing because it gave so much um, happiness. You mentioned, you know, growing up in a little town, is it three hours north of Oslo, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And much closer to the Arctic Circle as, as a result. Uh, so a small town, you said she's the only violinist. I understand there's like also a traditional Norwegian instrument that's like an eight string violin, essentially? Yes. Now, <laughs> so did she play that? Yes, okay. both of them. So this is the Hardanger fiddle, which is um, it's found in the area called Hardanger, which is on the west coast of Norway. And it's a really special instrument. It's uh, you only find it in Norway and it has eight or nine strings. Mm. So on the top, you have four of them and then four or five on laying underneath, which just resonates while you play on them. And uh, it's in the region I'm from, which is Valderes. Um, there is such a big tradition for it. It even had the valley has its own rhythm <laughs> amongst other things. And this uh, instrument, you can tune up to 27 different ways, depending on uh, what mood you're in, what time of day it is, what you feel like you're playing, etc., etc. So it's a very, it's a really personal instrument in many ways, um, how you use it. So you could tune the top four in kind of a traditional tuning and then like maybe like a minor key tuning for the underneath ones to like create like a mournful kind of contraposition or something? And actually a bit more than that. You, okay. So you can tune everything basically in up to 27 different ways, mm. which is really fun because you have so much reach and range in how you play tunes and what you play. And um, it's just, it's a really interesting instrument. It also has on top of the uh, violin, it has, um, it looks like a head of dragon and which is supposed to scare away, you know, frightened bad spirits. <laughs> so mm. it's a little bit of spirituality connected to the instrument. So there's so. some folklore around the playing of the oh, yeah. instruments and not just the music it makes. Absolutely. Does the, what you learned on that instrument translate to the violin? Like, like, does it make you think about the violin in a different way because you're, you know, maybe performing so. differently with those? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, the Hardangi fiddle, it's almost, it's a little bit smaller than a normal violin mm. and you play it almost a bit like a Baroque instrument. The, the, the uh, bridge of the instrument, not to get too technical about it, but the bridge of the instrument is very flat. So you can play all the different, almost four strings at the same time. But in order to do something, you can't have too much pressure. Mm. But what I really did take from Hardangi fiddle to playing classical um, is a a lot of them, the, the colors of the instrument, the, because there's so many different tunings, the resonance also is different. And also I think a lot of the rhythmic um, feel that you have with uh, folk music is, is very helpful to bring to the classical. And right. also just to learn to be flexible, quite simply. Right. <laughs> That's also useful. Now, with the creation of Arctic, like uh, something I'd never really 
considered before, but with a classical performer, very often it's, you know, I'm going to do an album of this composer or, you yeah. know, this thematic kind of thing of uh, like a collection of pieces that are already extant. But putting something like this together, you're almost kind of uh, acting as an executive producer to like create what you <laughs> want to see out on in the world. Like that, like you approached some composers and specifically asked for for new compositions and then also sort of sourced yes. out existing s songs that you wanted to kind of felt fit the same mood that you were trying to create? Absolutely. I mean, this was a very different approach, like you say, to compare to what it's usually done. It's that you kind of go about with the pieces saying, oh, I love this concerto. What should I possibly pair it with? This time I really went from it in the way of saying this is the expression I'd like to try to convey and how does these compositions fit into it. Um, and I think the story of Arctic and the soundscape that we wanted to create was um, really the driving force. And of course, we went through so many different compositions and different um, directions in a way, and then decided that this is really the story that we want to tell um, with this selection of pieces. And it's been really interesting and inspiring and really fun to go about it this way. And I think it's also what I was maybe the most surprised about is it felt really more a contemporary way of re recording than what I've been maybe doing before. Uh, in the end of the day, we're also artists of today. So also playing pieces that are created as we speak and are uh, kind of um, telling, um, put in a context made a lot of sense to me. So having new newly written compositions sit in conversation with existing compositions to kind of show that, that they are talking to each other or like addressing the same thing? I think so, definitely. And I do think it's incredibly interesting also to put something like uh, like Edward Grieg, which is also one of my favorite um, pieces, which is uh, on the uh, disc as well, together with Through the Fjellheim or Jakob Shea or other people who are uh, just writing these incredibly beautiful melodic structures and just see how well they can all fit together. Um, and also having, being able to kind of tie it in with a bigger theme and something that I think is really important <laughs> to talk about was, um, felt really meaningful. You mentioned Jacob and, and Frode that, you know, they contributed original compositions to, to this. And I'm curious what the ask, like, did you go to them saying like, I, this is the project I want you to write to it? Or did you say, do you have anything that exists <laughs> that's kind of like touching on this? Like, how do you go to these artists and, like, and what's that conversation? No. Just make this for me, right? <laughs> just do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, it was, uh, um, this was through Sony. So this is my first big collaboration with them since uh, signing with Sony and they are definitely you can really feel the benefit of having such a big company around you and part of having them was also exploring a little bit different um sounds quite simply and then we i remember very distinctly when i listened to i think it was the blue planet the first time and which is jacob shea and and uh, hans zimmer made music for and even when we watched, uh, listened to it the first time, I almost didn't need to watch the documentary because it was just so powerful what the music was doing and you can really envision everything that was going on. And I thought this is really what I would love to do for this particular album, to try create that kind of feeling of that you create your own visuals. Mm -hmm. um, so he was definitely first on the list and thankfully he wanted to do it. <laughs> so that was really, really great. And it's 
It, it's kind of amazing now that it's all been released and recorded and everything that uh, to have this um, piece from him. It's a very, very special piece and it's a six part suite, which really does tell you the story of the Arctic. So when you're talking to him, like, are you giving him cues about like what you're hoping for? Or do you just kind of say, hey, come up with something and come back to me? Like what's, what's that kind of <laughs> relationship like between performer and composer? Well, it it's, can be very different depending on the composer and, and also physical distance also obviously matters quite a bit. Um, it's a huge benefit if you're actually able to go to a studio or work with a composer in front of you. Mm -hmm. But uh, this was done during COVID. So, you know, most borders was were completely shut, out, uh, shut down. But um, with him, it was quite um, open in many ways as to what it should sound like. It was more of a would love to, uh, the violin obviously has to be present and be the leading voice. But other than that, we just wanted to kind of have these um, points that he would uh, write music for. So for instance, first movement is literally called frozen world. So then the sound is kind of centered around what is really frozen and what does the effect does it give you. And then it kind of goes through all these different stages of what uh, goes on in the Arctic. So everything from polar winds to the sunrise to um, back to the sea ice and the melting of it and all those things. So, I mean, he had kind of both very specific um, images in mind, but at the same time, a lot of freedom in how to create music around those topics. I read an interview you did with violinist and you talked about, you know, like a lot of people's conception of the Arctic is like harsh and austere. And so mm. the, the inclination would be to create a sonic scape that demonstrates that or speaks to that, but that you feel yeah. that there's a, a great beauty to the Arctic that you wanted to convey. Was that something that you talked to Jacob about in terms of this Arctic suite that like, I, I want beauty in this? Um, not as specific as that, but to me, this is also one of the many, many big keywords about the Arctic, which is important to convey. And, and that is that it is such a, unique you know multi multi-layered place and like you say i think many people do have the impression that it is stark and difficult and dark and and just almost you know not possible to live there um so to me this was a really important part of anything that had to do with arctic you need to try to show all the different sides um and i think it really came out in that way from the way he wrote his music which i'm really really grateful for Speaking of all the different sides, you recorded with the Arctic Philharmonic, and I imagine that was like integral to the the project. That like, if you were going to do a project about the Arctic, these would be the people that you record with. <laughs> Absolutely, and I've known them for a very long time, so to me, this felt really natural. And they're a fabulous group of musicians, and they're very flexible, and I, they really understand this. Um, sound of the north if i may put it like that it's something about being flexible and keeping the lyricism in their way of playing not too romantic not too rubato-ish but very pure and they definitely have that sound and uh, i couldn't imagine anyone better <laughs> to record such an album with now frode fjellheim obviously a lot of folks mm -hmm. who don't know classical music or contemporary composition may know his work just because they've seen frozen or have heard yeah. the soundtrack what was your first introduction <laughs> to him? Well, Fruda I've known for almost as long as I can remember. He's uh, an amazing musician and composer. I've known him more as a um, 
um, tradition bearer from the Sami tradition. Um, and then his more kind of frozen style came later. So I definitely knew him much more as a Sami performer. Mm. Um, but when we talked about the Arctic, it's of course um, super important to also acknowledge that this is a big part of the history of the Arctic. Um, and of course, as anything that is such a strong tradition that's not your own, you have to be very respectful and careful not to try to do the same, but be inspired by it. And with him, I felt um, really safe in doing so because he is also a bearer of that tradition. And uh, he made two pieces where, where um, he took very specific elements, uh, which is under the Arctic moon is one, and the other one is the return of the sun, which are two very um, important elements uh, in the north. Um, I'm sure you also experienced this in Canada, mm. but also, you know, when the when the sun returns, it's a big happening and it's uh, it's hope and it's life and, you know, new beginning, all those things. And it's um, important to celebrate it. No, absolutely. Yeah. We're, I mean, we're not quite as far north here in Winnipeg, but we do get a cold <laughs> winter. Um, yeah. In conversation with, uh, for, like, in terms of respecting the Sami culture and stuff like that, like what, what are you discussing with him? Like, is he kind of trying to convey the tone or the history behind some sort of like cultural elements of the song and, and how you can best acknowledge that or come to it? Like what, what are those kind of conversations like? Well, the conversations with him was mostly about creating the, um, the rhythmic feel in one way like he uses a lot of five eight so which isn't like um not um square way of kind of um doing composition so a lot of that has to do with just the feeling of rhythm and this is where i really felt the benefit of coming from folk music because it is it's not only like counting it you really just have to feel it in your bones where you're supposed to do the um where you're supposed to land let's say in a composition um and then when the other piece, which is Yoik inspired, um, this is something that I think is incredibly fascinating, how they use their voice to create um, or even talk about their emotions and have um, this is the way they communicate is through Yoik um, historically. And uh, it's uh, it's such a fascinating tradition. And I feel like I don't even know half of it, but it is amazing to have a little glimpse into it and, and be able to um, be fascinated by it. Well, speaking of tapping into tradition, your community uh, is is not far from Jotunheim. Yeah, <laughs> and and right. there's like Norse mythology <laughs> that you know you you lived under the shadow of. Uh, oh yes. Was was that something in the back of your head as you're you know performing? Like, are you thinking about kind of mythologizing the North th through these these songs? Like, is it, it like because you said you know you want to picture something? Like, are you? Yeah picturing that mountain or you picturing you know Mjolnir or something like what, what's kind of the imagery in your head <laughs> well I can give you one image right away which is has to do with my name so I don't know if you know this but uh, my name also comes from the Norse mythology okay and uh, Eld means uh, fire and Björg means protector so I am literally the fire protector of Jotunheimen. So that's also already mm. quite an image to have in mind, I would say. <laughs> so, I mean, a lot of this uh, mythology and this kind of Nordic background, of course, it's always present one way or another. Um, I find it even whenever I'm playing, let's say, Beethoven Brahms or anything that's very core classical or something newly written like the Arctic uh, repertoire. I think it's always going to be there because it's such a big part of um, the identity, quite simply. But Jotunheim uh, is an amazing area. And like you say, there's so much um, mythology connected to it. 
did your parents tell you why they chose that name with that sort of tradition and, and uh, you know, meaning to it? <laughs> yeah, it's because of family, actually. So my grandmother was called Ingebjörg, so they wanted to give a little spin on the name. So this is a very old name. I don't know exactly how many people are named, have this name anymore, but it's quite a small percentage, I would say. But it is, uh, I when I was small, I didn't kind of quite get it. And to me, it sounded a bit old fashioned, but no, I like it. It is very, has a powerful meaning, literally. <laughs> well, I have to imagine in a place like the Arctic where it's cold, protecting the fire is like central to, to life. Absolutely. And there's even a day uh, of Elbjörg, the name Elbjörg is celebrated on January 7th. And it is even a, a little bit of a tradition around it. So like you mentioned, like in, in the older times, and even today, I would say, you know, having heat, having the flame um, meant life. It literally meant how to sustain and to be alive. So back in the day, according to tradition, the most important person in the house, which was the female, was supposed to on January 7th, um, invite for a meal and to gather around the flame. And then she was supposed to say, uh, welcome the flame into the house, but say so high, so far, but not further. And then this way you would protect the flame and be the protector of it um, to carry on for the um, and care for the family and for everyone around. So drawing the boundaries or setting the, the limits in terms on things. Uh, speaking yeah. of setting the limits in terms, I want to get you to pick a selection from Arctic that we can play for listeners. Ooh. And if you can uh, give me a reason or an anecdote, or maybe if you can tell me kind of what what visual picture you had in your head when you were performing it or, or recording it? That is interesting. Okay, how many can I choose? Whatever. We got time. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> well, I would actually maybe like to start with choosing something from the Arctic Suite. Okay. Just because it is made specifically for the album and it also kind of sets the tone quite literally for um, the type of sound you're going to hear. Um, for this, I would probably choose the first one the first movement which is called a uh, frozen world um and this i think you can really picture uh more the kind of dark and stark uh, whiteness that you find in the arctic it's very very cold and that's the feeling you should have i think when listening to it all right we'll give that one a listen elberg uh the album is called arctic it's available now through sony classical thanks very much for taking some time to talk about the album thank you so much for having me
I'm a little too good at being alone. I've gotten a little too good at being on my own. Just a little too good at being alone. Where's my alder? Where's my ash? Where's my soul? I used to send myself to my room just to beat them to the punch. If I liked it up here, no need to fear the next time I mess up. So I'll be taking the overstory, Fiona and Joey, cause space to think is all I really need. Cause up here I'm the only one that can disappoint me. What? Nothing on me. Inner peace in my room, I'll call it serenity. You see, I'm independently dependent, free here, you can't hurt me. Best of all, I can't hurt you. No, I can't hurt you, no. Can't hurt you.
Here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio, you just heard Thunder Bay artist Kate Greenwood with the Gulls off of their Memories EP. Before that, Jill McKenna, uh, who has performed with all sorts of folks, has a new project under the name Marivon. Uh, the album None of This Is Mine is out today. We heard two songs. Uh, there is a small echo in a hollow bone, and we are hexagons in ancient honey. Uh, I had uh, emailed with uh, Jill saying my favorite was There's a Small Echo in a Hollow Bone, which is uh, early in the record. And uh, Jill emailed back to say that We're Hexagons and Ancient Honey was actually part of kind of the same song structure and, and recording. So uh, decided to play those back to back. Before that, we started the set off with Psychic Pollution of Victoria, B.C., with the lead-off track to their new album, Transcendental Phases, that was Rise Above Meaning. Going to change the pace a little bit here as we head towards After 8 Radio and hand things over to Kai. Uh, Eddie Chacon, uh, formerly of Charles and Eddie of Would I Lie to You fame, has a new record coming out on Stone Throw called Sundown in uh, just a couple weeks, produced with John Carroll Kirby, uh, someone I'm a big fan of. Uh, we're going to play the track Holy Hell, uh, not the Mind Design remix, but just the uh, the album original. Then we've got uh, French producer Alan Brax with Never Coming Back featuring Annie, and we've got something new from True Thoughts, one of my all-time favorite lib- labels, the artist Ebby Soda, featuring Jay Harley, a single called Please Don't that has a real great broken beat vibe that reminds me of uh, classic Craig David dance music. Uh, keep it locked here on 101.5 UMFM. We'll be back here on Thank God It's Free Range next Friday.